You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Palliative care is a growing field in medicine. Before I had the honor of doing this interview, I had little understanding of what palliative care was. What understanding I did have, while in the vague ballpark, was confused and mostly inaccurate. And I know that I'm not alone. So to help clarify and better inform us, my guest is Dr. Caroline Knox. Dr. Knox is a graduate of Wesleyan University and Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. She trained in family medicine at St. Mary's Family Medicine Residency in Grand Junction, Colorado. She was a general practitioner in New Zealand before pursuing further training in palliative care at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Caroline has practiced palliative care at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, since moving to Asheville with her family in 2014. Well, welcome, Caroline. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, David. I'm very glad to be with you. Well, why don't we begin by first letting uh, you kind of clarify terms for us. Um, what is palliative care, um, and how does it differ from something like hospice? Sure. Um, I, I t- often tell patients and families that palliative care is the theme of your care, and you can get palliative care in hospice, but um, palliative care is the larger umbrella that doesn't always include hospice. Um, you know, as a practicing palliative care doctor, I care for people throughout the whole phase of their life and illnesses. And if someone is going through an illness um, and they either cure part of part of what's going on or all of what's going on and have many, many more years left of life, um, then, then that's, that's quite common, but it may also be that somebody has a series of illnesses that are chronic and they're not going away. And um, they're not curable, but they're also not imminently dying or dying within months. And, and they fall under our umbrella. Um, there's also people who go through a trauma, you know, something where they were otherwise in their a good state of health and something happens like a car crash or something like that, where they, um, they may not be well for a significant period of time and they may be at high risk of dying. Um, but they're ultimately expected to make a full recovery over some months to maybe years. And, um, they fall under our umbrella. And then also people who are very near to the end of their lives and would qualify for hospice if they wanted the full, the full package of hospice services, but don't like the word hospice or what it implies or what it meant in their, and their family and previous losses, um, they they may um, they may want palliative care, even though their life expectancy is is by all accounts very short. Um, hospice specifically is a Medicare designation. Um, people in their wisdom, however many years ago, I think it was maybe the early '80s when they established the Medicare hospice benefit, decided that um, the definition of meeting hospice um, criteria was for two doctors to agree that a person would, we would not be surprised if this person's life ended due to their hospice diagnosis illness uh, within the next six months. But when I did practice hospice, um, there would be many people who I would, they would have been meeting that criteria for years and I would meet them again and say, yes, I, I would not be surprised and they would be recertified to meet hospice criteria. So I think, um, one of the misconceptions is that hospice is like a death sentence. Like you will be dead in so many months and it's no, we, none of us have that crystal ball. Um, but it is a wonderful set of services that if you are deemed to qualify by your medical criteria and you want those services, um, they're wonderful services. And I wish the hospice definition was broadened because I think there are many people living with chronic illness who would benefit from the whole hospice package of services, but that's just not how it's been defined by our uh, our government and um, our insurers have followed those Medicare guidelines, even the private insurances. So, so anyway, um, 
I tell people, as I said, hospice um, is is a set of services and palliative care is is the theme of that. And what it really means is um, for me, and, and I call it palliative care, I don't call it palliative medicine or, you know, is for me, because I'm a medical doctor, a practice in medicine um, that is really centered on um, all aspects of humanity. Um, We are particularly coming in when people are suffering. This is not a preventive area of medicine, typically. This is not... um, you know, this is not wellness care. This is care when people are ill, but we're not just attending to the physical and the biological ways of assessing and treating our patients. We are um, really honing in on all aspects of what it is that's going on with them. And there may be spiritual suffering. There may be um, suffering of the family unit or fracturing of the social situation that goes hand in hand with this illness. Um, and so we, we are really focusing on the social and the spiritual aspects as of equal, if not more importance than some of the biological and physical aspects. And so that's where I feel like palliative care is the phrase that best describes what I, what I do. Well, how did you um, come to be a palliative care physician. Uh, kind of tell, tell us your own journey, uh, and just in general, uh, your own life journey, but also as it particularly led to, to this area of medicine. Sure. Um, well, I guess when I was a kid, I was always drawn to older folks, and I like to go. Um, I love spending time with my own grandparents and, and their peers and just visiting with people who wanted to tell stories and had the time to do it and, and felt that was important. And then, um, um, so that was sort of what I did for some of my high school time is, you know, go visit folks at nursing homes who didn't have a lot of physical wherewithal to get around and do things that I would have otherwise been involved with as a young person, but um, just to visit with them and and to, just to be by them and hear their stories that they're able to tell. And also in, in the church that I grew up in, um, just some of the older folks there were just some of the most colorful and the most um, welcoming and loving of, of us kids. And so that intergenerational um, part of church was just one of my favorite parts um, growing up in the church. And then um, when I went to college, two of my um grandmothers, my, both of my grandmothers, um, had illnesses and, um, I was really, um, that was, that was pretty momentous for me to lose, lose one of my grandmothers pretty, pretty, um, unexpectedly. And the other one fairly unexpectedly too, she had a very rapidly uh, developing colon cancer in my first two years of college. And then, um, 9-11 happened when I was a resident advisor, and I realized that I had a particular uh, affinity to being by people who were um, asking why and, you know, why me and why my family and why, why the sudden senseless tragedy. And, you know, um, I was also caring for people's you know, helping them find answers to physical questions. And so that's what kind of got me into medicine is, is experiencing 9-11 as a resident advisor to other young people and experiencing the losses of my, my grandmother and how that affected our family. And I wasn't pre-med, but then all of a sudden I pivoted after graduating from college thinking I wanted to be a teacher or a social worker. Um, into applying to medical schools and um, took a job in Washington, D.C., where I was mentored by a really wonderful uh, physician, retired physician who was interested in chronic illness care, improving chronic illness care for, um, for 
basically the, the folks who are cared for by internal medicine residents throughout the country and improving the way that medical schools teach about folks with chronic illness. And that got me interested in primary care. And so I was enthralled by all aspects of, you know, care for folks, whether it be pediatrics or, you know, pregnant people and delivering babies, um, all the way through chronic illness care and end of life care. And so I was interested in family medicine. And then I had a really wonderful opportunity to visit with the palliative consultation team at Vanderbilt, where I was going to medical school. And there were experiences on the burn unit um, and different ICUs where folks were really on a, almost a runaway train of procedures and things being done to them and their family members and advocates and the patients themselves had not been presented with options of, would you like to get off this runaway train? And when the palliative care team came and it was a medical doctor who was um, excellent and smart and compassionate and sharp and a social worker and um, a chaplain, and they just sat with a family and a patient for as long as it took for, um, for people to really ask those questions and, um, you know, be brave enough to hear the answers to them. And it was so compelling for me because I felt like it really was addressing all aspects of humanity um, as opposed to glossing over things just for the sake of doing what, what we can do to prolong people's life. Because I think for many people who are dealing with illness, um, another day is not the most important thing. Sometimes it's how that day is spent and, and, and how a person feels and who they're with. And so that's, um, that was my introduction in, in medical school. And it, I found it most compelling of all the specialties that I got to, to visit with. And so I vowed there in my third year of medical school that that's what I wanted to do. And then I had to figure out how to go about that. <laughs> well, and, and talk about that. I mean, is, cause I know if you want to be a surgeon, that's one track. If you want to do specialties, uh, you know, so is, is, is there, uh, are there curricular tracks? For this? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So when you graduate from medical school, um, the next step is to choose uh, an internship and residency for, for further training. And um, I really thought about that. Um, at Vanderbilt, it's very focused on the medical subspecialties. And when I told them I wanted to do family medicine, they thought, mm, are you sure you don't mean medicine pediatrics, which is um, more internal medicine and uh, you know, p pediatric training in the hospital uh, with some extra time with all the subspecialties like oncology and nephrology and cardiology, pulmonology, et cetera, rheumatology. Um, and I spent some time out on the Navajo reservation following family doctors. And I just thought that this was my tribe of people that really wanted to um, meet people where they were. Um, and so I, I wanted to be trained under the philosophy of family medicine, uh, that, and I really enjoyed laboring along with women. I mentioned delivering babies and it's not so much the delivery of a, of a newborn that enthralls me. It's being with a person during that magical time when another soul is coming into our, our physical realm is a really magical set of hours and days and um, I, I like that. And I wanted to see what that was about more and, and spend some more time there. And um, I also felt that family doctors really got to know their patients really well and towards the, during that aspect of life that deals with a lot of chronic illness and um, and 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 those folks stay with those doctors through the end of their lives. And so I really respected that. That being said, I was so um, compelled by the ICUs and the opportunity to really get right to the heart of the matter when people are in crisis. And so I always 
knew I probably wanted to work in a hospital, a big trauma center like Vanderbilt. Um, but I, I took a little side um, trip and was a family doctor and for several years and even practiced in um, New Zealand where I got to um, see how another culture uh, uh, does medicine. And, and that taught me a whole lot more too. And, um, and then when I um, went to look for a job, well, then I went into training in hospice and palliative medicine. And I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, where um, unfortunately, we did not really have uh, too much opportunity to practice hospice in a hospice house. Um, this region of the country, Asheville, North Carolina, we're very blessed to have two inpatient hospice houses. But in um, Seattle, um, we had one opportunity at the VA, which was great. And I love working with veterans. And we had another opportunity at um, um, a house that was actually founded for uh, men with HIV AIDS, really end stage AIDS. And um, it remains focused on caring for that population, but it, it evolved in a time when um, uh, those men were excluded from end of life care and other places due to people's fears, irrational fears, honestly. And so that was another unusual opportunity. And then I had some, some work with hospice, what we call routine hospice care, which is going to people's homes or nursing homes, wherever it is that they live. But again, I had such a strong training there in folks with, you know, getting bone marrow transplants for, you know, advanced cancers, um, children, uh, chronic, you know, so ill that they were in and out of the pediatric hospital, um, people getting advanced heart failure treatments like LVADs, left ventricular assist devices and, 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 uh, organ transplants that I, I felt like, again, I'm, I felt most compelled by the, the hospice, I'm sorry, the inpatient, meaning trauma center in the hospital, hospital, hospice-based palliative consultation. So that's where I ended up seeking my, you know, my job out of training. And, um, but I really do feel like I learned a whole lot from my time working with hospice and, um, you know, one of my most memorable patients um, from medical school was actually a home hospice visit. And um, that, you know, all of these experiences um, stay with me and, and, you know, helped kind of propel me forward to continue to want to do this work. Well, when, when you're called in, um, and is it just you by yourself or do you have a team like you spoke of mm -hmm. earlier? And then do, do you, do you or your team then take over the full care? Uh, or are you still in collaboration with the other doctors? Yeah, where I work, um, at the hospital where I work, we are consultants. We do not ever take over anyone's care. Um, you know, just like when you're regular, um, doctor overseeing your care in a hospital might ask a cardiologist to come in and offer their consultation or, uh, you know, a dermat, you know, any, any subspecialist, that's how we come in. So we need a, we need to be requested officially by another doctor to get involved. But with, with the subject matter that we focus on, which is, you know, what are your goals for your medical care? Um, we really want to make sure we have the patient and family permission also to come in. So we always ask that the, the doctors who are asking us to come in and see their patients really explain why uh, to the patients and families before, before we, we walk in the door. Um, and you asked the other part you asked about was, are, am I part of a team? And um, these days our, our team has been affected my, my particular team that I work in. Um, but up to this point for the last, you know, eight or more years that I've been doing this here in this area, um, would it, we've had a wonderful palliative team. And so typically when I go in to meet a, a person or their family, I'm going in with another discipline and that might be a chaplain, a palliative care chaplain, 
or a social worker who is not a social worker in the sense of, you know, necessarily hooking people up with resources that you might find out in the community, but the type of social worker that is a counselor, really a a family uh, or counselor. And so um, the reason why we go in with more than one specialty is because, you know, of course, my preparation for my visits is to scour a person's medical record and to really, you know, they've already been through so much by the time they get to me. They don't want me asking some of these basic questions. They want me to know all of that so they don't have to repeat it all. Um, And because we're really talking about next steps. And so I need to know everything that they've been through before that. So I'm really geared towards their medical history and, and what's written in the medical chart or what other what they've told other doctors, what their family has told other doctors and what their pressing medical issues are now. So it's such a wonderful opportunity for somebody who doesn't have to read all of that and really can focus on, you know, what is your social situation? So that might be a social worker, you know, do you have a home? Are you unhoused? Um, are you separated from your family physically? You know, have, are, are your other family members ill? Um, you know, do you have children who are also in crisis? Um, there's, there's, there's so much more when people are ill, there's so much more that causes their suffering than their, than their medical illness in their own body. And so having somebody with just separate eyes on all of that is, is so wonderful because when I'm talking with them and interviewing them, I'm hearing what I'm hearing based on my training and they may be hearing and seeing something entirely different. Or if there are multiple people in the room and I'm answering questions about medical illness, they're looking around the room and, and seeing the body language of the other folks that can tell so much more of this person and family's story. And then it really becomes more of a conversation and instead of a doctor just saying, this is this and this is what you should do or, or whatever. And similarly, a, a chaplain, when, I'm, when I have the opportunity to work with a really good palliative care chaplain, you know, there are some questions that no doctor can answer, you know, why me? And, you know, just questions about suffering that are really in the spiritual dimension. And um, I, part of the reason I chose palliative care is because, again, that's where I feel most drawn to those particular points in a person's life, but I'm not trained as a chaplain. I'm not trained as a spiritual counselor. I'm not, you know, a student of the Bible. A lot of people, particularly in this region of the country, speak in biblical terms. And, you know, other than memorizing the Bible, there's more of what does that mean in this particular religious culture versus that denomination, you know, and just that extra, um, that extra knowledge base. I I don't have that. So I really appreciate, you know, a good palliative care chaplain, just knowing how to be with people and walk with people on these really difficult spiritual journeys. So, so palliative care is really a team, a team sport. It's an interdisciplinary um, practice that takes advantage of the synthesis between all these different ways of looking at a person when they're ill, as opposed to additive. People use the term multidisciplinary, for example, in an ICU rounds where it's the nutritionist and the pharmacist and the, you know, the pulmonologist doing the ventilator. And it's one plus one plus one plus one, hopefully equals the total that you need. But the magical synthesis between a palliative care physician a palliative care chaplain and a palliative care social worker is not additive as much as it's, in my opinion, exponential um, in its benefits. So you usually come in together then? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because as as you talked about, uh, it tends to be uh, each specialty comes in and focuses on their particular thing separate from the others, and so their tests are different from other tests. And uh, Because I just lost my sister. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, and oh and and she was going through uh, multiple problems, 
Uh, and and so she, they were talking about um, uh, my my nephew and niece who were who were there and you know helping care uh, for. Um, also, you know, we we're having to deal with with different doctors wanting different tests, uh, doing different things, um, and I guess working separately as opposed to uh, working together. Uh, you know, um, so well. Yeah, and I guess that when you asked, like, do I come in and take over? I don't come in and take over, but I do interview all those specialists, and they know where I'm coming from, and they know that I'm trying to come from the point of view of the patient and family member. And so oftentimes they can, instead of just saying, yes, you need this by my cardiology assessment, they say, oh, you're coming from the patient and family, and they'll say, if, if the goals are this, I wouldn't recommend any of these tests that I'm saying you have to do. And so I can interview all these doctors and then bring it together for the family in a way that um, doesn't take over, but it presents it in a different way of thinking, um, presents that same information, um, ideally more from the patient perspective. Okay. Okay. What well, kind of um, walk us through uh, a day <laughs> with, <laughs> with how you, what you do and how you do that? Yeah, one of the reasons why I really love working in a hospital is because um, you just don't ever know what a, a day will bring. You can have had some patients that you met the day before, and you can have some plans to meet with them, but um, you don't know what, you know, your, your day may change based on what has happened to them or what their day is looking like or what's happening to their family. And so I... I we like to set meetings up in advance so that all of the person, all the people who care for that person can be involved in a conversation if that's what the, the patient desires. Um, but we also, you know, need to be flexible. Um, so we start our day with an interdisciplinary meeting with the nurses, the palliative care nurses, the, um, the palliative care providers, which would include nurse practitioners on my team. Um, physicians, and um, uh, up to very recently, we've had an excellent palliative care chaplain on my team um, and social worker. We used to have three social workers on my team, and um, unfortunately now we just have one. But um, in any case, we all meet, and we go over the entire list of patients that we're all set to see. And we divide it up so that not every single person sees all of the patients, um, but we listen to each other's cases and we seek um, advice and um, just the counsel of our other team members because um, I think this, this is maybe a bad term, but bad phrase, but the phrase like there are, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> like in medicine, one thing I learned very early in medical school was that there are many different ways to be a good doctor and there are many different ways to be a bad doctor. There are many different ways to palliative practice medicine. And there are many different ways to practice palliative medicine. And there's not necessarily a right way or a wrong way, but there's different ways of looking at things. And I think that's just, um, that's just us all being humans <laughs> primarily. But I, I really appreciate that we, um, you know, we group think and we support each other. Um, oftentimes we'll start with a meditation Oftentimes we'll allow ourselves to grieve just publicly, you know, um, publicly meaning among ourselves, just the suffering that we have been witness to or, you know, really part of in a lot of ways. Um, we, we learn a lot about, you know, the tragic circumstances of people's lives. Um, and we see, we just, we just see so much. And so we, we, we use that time to support each other so that we can keep on doing the work. So we spend about 45 minutes with each other, sometimes longer if needed. And then we break off and we, um, you know, for a new consultation, we, or a family meeting, we try to again, have another discipline with a provider, but there may be just a visit that I'm going to do with a patient. And then I'll make a phone call to their brother later. Or, you know, it just depends on what it is. But I, I like to spend, um, you know, I review their medical charts to make sure I know what's going on with them from day to day. And then I go and visit with them and make phone calls to try to 
keep up excellent communication, especially when family members are scattered or, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic when we weren't allowed to have visitors in the hospital, you know, just helping con to connect people to to their family members who are in the hospital and, um, you know, giving them, give it, making sure they hear from a doctor who has talked to all the other doctors. So just helping with that communication. And then we just help navigate. We just meet with people, maybe spending an hour or more with them, helping to navigate, you know, um, what's going on with them, sort of, you know, the way doctors see it, these are your diagnoses. And here are your testing and treatment options, meaning, you know, you could go in any of these directions and these would be risks and benefits of this or that. Um, and with also with a focus on prognosis, I think a lot of other medical doctors forget that aspect that we were taught about when we were in medical school of if I pursue this type of treatment line, what is the prognosis for me? Or if I pursue this, what's my prognosis? If my disease was to run its natural course without any medical intervention, what would you expect my life to be like in a, a week or a month or six months or a year? And so we really spend a lot of time on prognosis. And then we um, support people as they're going through these difficult decisions. And, um, a lot of times people are not able to make decisions. And so we're supporting them through that, through that unknowing and that uncomfortable period of not having good choices, you know, to choose among. So. We'll talk a little more about that, that, that aspect. If, if you have a patient who is unable uh, to make decisions for themselves, uh, how do you how do you address that? Mm -hmm. I have a patient that I've been seeing the last uh, couple of weeks, and um, you know he doesn't have a lot of good choices. Um, he's he was recently diagnosed with an advanced uh, advanced lung cancer. He's also a end stage kidney disease patient. He's on dialysis. Um, and he's got a number of other medical issues that make him too frail to under to endure treatment for his cancer, life prolonging treatment. As a matter of fact, the oncologists are pretty certain that his life would be shortened if he pursued, you know, cancer directed treatments. Um, he also has a really um, severe underlying anxiety um, disorder, and. Um, He's alienated a lot of folks along the way, but he has wonderful family, brother, sister, daughter. And so um, he's got this process going on in his chest, this, this progressive lung cancer that's marching along every day. Um, but yesterday he told me that he wanted to focus on getting stronger and he wanted to move around more. And so um, the physical therapists have been coming in and trying to move him, but he's so weak that they haven't really been able to move in that direction. And so I'm, you know, I, but every day, all the other doctors are saying, when is he going to just decide he wants to stop dialysis and go to hospice? And I'm just visiting with this man who really is not ready to do that. And so I, what I did was I just called the, you know, physical therapist and the, and the nurse. And I said, you know, he's really, you know, he's really looking for your services for palliative reasons. He wants to feel better. He wants to, you know, he can't move himself, but he wants to be moved. And I know that he's not really able to get stronger. And those are the criteria that you're usually following as you work with people, but please work with him to see if he can get stronger just even in these days, because we don't think he's got more, more than weeks to maybe months, but let's work with this man where he is. So it's, it's all about working with people where they are and helping the other um, medical and, you know, professionals continue to, to do that as well. And all the while, you know, keeping their family in the loop. Luckily this man's family very much supports him. They're not trying to rush him in any direction or push him in any direction. So they're, they're wanting 
So I'm just updating them about where he is every day. I don't know if that helps. Well, uh, what about like with someone who has special needs uh, of particular mm. kind uh, that 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 can't make decisions? Yeah. Own? How do you how do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, um, you know, there are many people in that category, and um, there's a whole um, legal uh, framework to 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 officially find a person's next of kin. So here in the state of North Carolina, if you've got a guardian, that's the first person that you talk to. Um, if you've not got a guardian, um, uh, you can you can. And you you have you at some point had the ability to nominate a healthcare power of attorney, you you would go with that person. Um, if you've not got a healthcare power of attorney and you're married, it would be the spouse, the 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 legally married spouse. Um, if if you've not got a spouse, then it goes to the majority of your parents, living parents and adult children, and then beyond that, it would. If you don't have those folks, it would be siblings or other family members or um, what we call a number seven, meaning the seventh on the list is any person with a defined, you know, a sustained relationship who is acting in the best interest of that person. But sometimes you get all the way down that those seven item lists and you've not got anybody. Or in other situations, you may have a... Um, a spouse, a legally married spouse who is estranged or maybe abusive or, you know, in the case of an elderly person and an abusive child. So sometimes you have to work with a legal surrogate who may not be the best decision maker for a person. And that is very ethically murky. And that's when we call the assistance of, you know, an ethics consultant or, um, you know, just, other support people in the hospital to know how can we best advocate for this person? You know, all of these doctors believe this, you know, this person who is their legal surrogate is um, not hearing any of this is maybe not hearing the patient at all or ignoring what the patient has said they wanted in the past. And so that's where we really have to um, just stay with people and, and through you know, it may it may be that the person who's supposed to make the decision is just so distraught themselves that they are unable to really listen or be present or advocate. And so it's really spending a lot of time, you know, whether it be our our, our chaplain, you know, just being with that person's suffering and, you know, to, to support a person who's having to make really difficult decisions for, for someone who can't speak for themselves. So it's it's never cut and dry and it's, um, it's never easy. Um, what kind of codes and policies, uh, are you obligated to, or that, that you follow? Uh, Because you spoke about, you know, there are legal parameters, uh, that you have to deal with. And then you mentioned that kind of list of, of, uh, people that you can consult, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, what are the, the codes and policies and legal things that you are kind of bound to or guided by? Yeah. So the North Carolina surrogacy laws, that's one. Um, and then for me, just personally, you know, the Hippocratic oath, you know, do no harm. And that's, that's a lot of, I, I, I explain that, um, you know, that to folks a lot where, there may be somebody who, you know, wants, of course, they want to live longer. They really want to live longer. And they're, they're saying, I want, I want you to, to give me these treatments that, you know, whether it be medical nutrition or um, a cancer-directed therapy. But because of our medical knowledge, we know that we may be giving you a lot of fluid that your heart is too weak to to process. And so we, we know that if we give you what you're asking for, just write it as if you go to a store and you say, I want this treatment and, and you pay for it and you get it like a more of a transactional thing that we could be contributing to the hastening of your dying 
and or your your suffering. We could re- really greatly increase your suffering. And so I explain to people, I want to help you, but I don't want to harm you in trying to help you. And I think when people hear it that way, they they can start to think, oh, this is not a doctor withholding something for me that that will help me if I get it. This is a doctor saying, yes, I have this test or this treatment or this intervention, but giving it to you while it would be the easiest thing, it wouldn't be um, the best the best decision um, and it wouldn't get you to your goals. So we start with what for palliative care, I would say my biggest principle is identify what a patient's goals are, what their priorities are, what their values are, and then try to mesh that with what options they have available and what their current medical situation is. And so once I can explain to, to them with your goals and your set of circumstances, these are the options you have, then then we can start to talk about the benefits and the burdens of each of those treatment options or paths. So it's it's um it's honesty, I think, just being honest, you know, not not glossing over any aspect that may be more difficult or may take more time. You know, for example, somebody who they're in pain, but they're not um, giving them an opioid is not going to resolve that pain. It may um, add a lot of other side effects that perpetuate their pain or worsen their overall circumstance. And it's very easy for doctors, and we know this because of the opioid crisis, just to write a prescription for a drug that a patient wants. But if we take the time to explain why I would be hurting you in, in moving forward with this, it's harder, but it's the right thing to do. And so that's one of the other things with palliative medicine is I'm not going to rush through something that's so important and so serious. I'm going to take the time to do this. And I, and I have the opportunity to do that within palliative care. As a consultant, um, how do you mediate between uh, Western medical options and alternative options like traditional Chinese medicine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I had a patient um, this past winter who um, she was um, she was living with a, a, a nephew who was really interested in herbal practices, and um, they were following the guidance of a practitioner in another country um, who was saying if you take these herbs, your you know metastatic breast cancer will. Will, will vanish. It will go away. It will be totally cured. And she had been following those very strict dietary and herbal um, restrictions and remedies. She'd been following that regimen and her disease had progressed and she was dying. She was dying within days to maybe a week or two from the time I met her. And um, she initially was being pressed not to accept hospital admission by her family because they thought that we would be imposing a lot of Western medicines that would shorten her life. And um, ultimately the, that family member agreed to support her hospitalization because um, IV fluids had been started and had sort of awakened, allowed her to, she was very dehydrated and she perked up a little bit with some IV fluids And so, you know, it was the chaplain and I who really spent a lot of time with this patient and the family. And, um, we, we have to first admit that this is not our realm. We, we don't know, you know, the, the, the science or the step we've not studied what you've studied. So we have to first admit ignorance, (laughs) you know, we only know what we know. And then second of all, we have to, um, Uh, be honest about, um, you know, if there are aspects of certain treatments that are being recommended and another, you know, there are things that that I have learned about those treatments, share those, but then just be humble enough to say that different, you know, as I said, there are many ways to skin a cat. There are many ways to, to be well, to be healed. Um, and some of these things, you know, um, may, may help each other. They may, they may support whatever it is that the person wants, 
but whether or not I believe in something doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's the person's experience and the family experience. And so there's no benefit in coming in and saying, well, that whole way of thinking is wrong. You know, even if I think it is, which usually I don't know enough about it to know one way or the other. So I just have to say, absolutely. You know, this is something that, you know, in your life has been helpful for you. Let's see if we can bring that in in some way and, and dovetail it with the things that we know how to do here in a hospital. Um, there are certain things that, you know, they would not allow in a hospital, you know, just due to safety codes and things like that. And so we have to explain, well, you know, I can't write a prescription for this or have a pharmacist, you know, allow this, but, you know, if you want to do this in, in your way, you know, that, that may be permissible, you know, so there's just different, different things that come up, but absolutely. I mean, so many people, um, have benefited from, um, practices that have nothing to do with Western medicine. And even in the hospital, we used to have integrative specialists. We used to have music therapists. We used to have, um, massage and Reiki and, um, art therapy. You know, there are so many different ways that have nothing to do with Western medicine that are helpful in a hospice hospital setting. And I, I wish there were more, uh, honestly, these days than there are, um, but but absolutely, palliative medicine can go hand in hand or side by side with with almost anything. One of the interviews I'm going to be having uh, next year um, is uh, with a gay Baptist pastor mm-hmm. uh, who has written a book uh, called Queer Lessons, uh, Cody Sanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about... Um, that for the for the queer community, um, the the varying legal options related to medicine, and I know this this is state by state, uh, so I know you, you can speak for North Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. but but he, he talked about and you know especially it's not it's not as much as it was but it still exists where uh, since uh, gay marriage wasn't recognized then the partner wasn't considered family and were excluded uh, from any decision-making, uh, any any opportunity sometimes to visit, any opportunity to uh, help make choices, uh, any opportunity sometimes even to be there uh, at end-of-life kind of things. Um, so how, uh, what, are, what are North Carolina's laws uh, relating to the queer community. Uh, Mm. have you had to address any of that in your own, uh, experiences? Um, I would say that when this whole chain of decision-making is really only comes into play when there isn't a decision maker or, there are conflicting viewpoints among people who stake a claim in a person's decision-making medical decision-making. Um, I'm trying to think of a, of a occasion where a, um, where a, a gay person's partner was the desired, um, was the desired decision-maker by the patient and their, um, another family member who was higher on that North Carolina chain because either the, because their marriage wasn't recognized, but I think it would be more because they weren't actually legally married. They never did that. That's very common. Um, and I would say that that's one of the things that palliative medicine, you know, I guess doesn't shy away from is, is this, you know, this complexity of, okay, let's see where this, this difference in opinion is coming from. Is the person who is trying to exclude this person's partner um, doing so out of a place of their own suffering? You know, are they, what are their intentions in advocating for this person? What, what hurts are they experiencing? And is there a way that we can have these conversations together or, you know, in an incremental fashion that includes everybody and helps to come to healing 
you know, family healing, you know, spiritual healing. And so I think, as I said, it's, it's too complicated to distill down into like a, this, you know, we do this and then we do that. But I think, I think that's really the heart of it is just, um, honoring the humanity in each of us, even people who may be, um, trying to exclude in, in a hateful way or a fearful way and really trying to, um, making sure that a, a person who's, you know, has val as I said, you know, identifying that person's values and, and, um, making sure that even if their partner is not their legal surrogate, that they are, that they are part of this process because, you know, whether they are the one side by side, you know, at the bedside every day to somebody in the hospital, or they're the ones who are going to, they're the ones who've been caring for somebody at home. You know, you cannot exclude a person in that closer relationship. It's, it's, it would just be wrong. And, and so just finding ways that we can include everybody and honor everybody's relationship with the person. Um, and I don't want to say we do this by going against the law. I'm, I'm saying we're, we're just working with the circumstances and trying to bring people together. Um, I don't know if that helps, but um, I've not had any, I don't, I, if I, I've not had many experiences where we really can't include somebody's partner um, because of a, a legal reason or something like that. Um, I think people, I had a, I had a very, um, conservative pastor father who was, um, his, his son, um, had moved to Atlanta where, um, being black and queer was much more culturally accepted from their small town in rural North Carolina. And he, um, he was in the restaurant industry and there's, you know, some substance stuff that goes on there. And ultimately he had acquired, you know, he'd a, a, acquired a HIV and he was dying of complications of that. Um, because, um, but this man couldn't have been more conservative, this father, this pastor, he couldn't have been more taken by fear and, and shame and, and all of that. But ultimately, I mean, through weeks, you know, weeks of closely working with this young man and his father and his mother, and, and, and honestly, the mother was probably the, 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 the linchpin in bringing this father in, bringing the humanity and bringing the fatherly love in, um, this, this man did not die um, alone. He did not die without hearing from his father how much he loved him and um you know it was the close work of of our team and our chaplain that that helped to to bring this healing in this way we could not reverse that this was a end stage process a terminal illness but we could come to some healing for this young man and his and his family um through through persistence and, and, um, listening and allowing, allowing whatever, you know, came up. Well, as a final question, uh, you had touched on earlier, uh, yeah. about how you and your team kind of help each other, uh, process, but talk more specifically about you. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, since you are daily dealing with, as you talked about, extended mm -hmm. tragedies of people and illnesses. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you take care of yourself uh, during all this? Yeah. Um, well, I, um, I have an extremely supportive spouse. <laughs> um, I have an extremely supportive family, my parents, my sister, even my children, they're, they're young, but they, they know that sometimes, um, I'm emotionally spent and I don't really have the bandwidth to have empathy for some of the stuff that might come up in daily family life. And, um, they, they, I mean, they offer grace and, uh, forgiveness and acceptance to me. So I think just, um, 
being emotionally honest about what I'm going through with, with my close folks is, is key. Um, I think I, I dwell just personally, um, in the sadness. I, 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 I don't like to walk away from it. I, I, um, I could have never, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to go to divinity school or anything like that, but to me, this is kind of the closest way to deal with the mysteries of life is just to, uh, you know, when, when, when I'm in the midst of suffering, just to, to be there with it and not to try to squelch it or ignore it or, um, um, you know, if it's come on to my physical being, I need to acknowledge that. I need to breathe. I need to meditate on that. Um, and whether that's, you know, a loss that I may have experienced, you know, in as a doctor or whether that's, you know, um, just something I'm going through personally, I, I just try to face, face it, whatever it is, and get the support from, from the people I love. And to see the beauty in um, the beauty in, in humanity and um, allow for people to teach me things. And sometimes they're really tough lessons that are, I don't really come to understand until many months later. Um, people I may have had anger towards, you know, because they weren't acting in a loving way towards their, towards their, their person who was my patient. And, and then I, and then I, think more about that. And, um, you know, I like to take walks. I like to meditate. As I said, I like to have a physical practice of yoga where I'm acknowledging, yes, I'm physically holding a lot of this and, and, and move through that. Um, and music, honestly, I think, um, I was in a gospel choir in college and, uh, sometimes just, um, turning on my speaker and, um, like a day like today, I've, I've got the house empty. The children are at school. I don't have to work and I'm going to clean with some, with some music. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my personal practice. Um, but, um, it's different every day and, and, um, different every season. So here we are in this, going into this solstice period and, uh, sometimes sitting and sitting with the darkness and sitting with the cold is something I need to go through. <laughs> Not my preference. I, I never <laughs> like being cold. <laughs> but thank you uh, for being with us today. Uh, you have been very helpful uh, in guiding us and understanding this and, and those options. So I'm grateful for your time and for your generosity. Well, uh, thank you. Thanks for speaking with me and having me on your show. I've enjoyed it. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Oh,